Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Mark, this word in your ear is brought to you Thanks to NordVPN. Now, you've probably never heard the expression VPN before, have you? (laughs) I have, actually, frequently, and mostly on this podcast. (laughs) Do you know what it stands for? I do, and and I'm confident that I've got the right answer. The answer is virtual private network. Say that again. It's virtual private network. I know it is. Is there a way to keep your data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in either at home or abroad? Absolutely right. Does it also protect your identity and encrypt your data so that nobody can steal your identity? Oh, if you're lucky. In fact, in fact, always, actually. Is there a fun side to it as well? Do you know, because I've heard tell that at the same time it enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50, how many, Mark? 50, 50 different countries. This means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and TV programs from around the world, Mark. That's quite something. Happy days. My TV uh, pick this week, I've been watching. Have you seen Barry? Have you seen Barry? Barry is a series. Featuring a guy on rather t- rather technical, Bill Hader, who came up through Saturday Night Live, but is now out there on his own. And Barry is something he stars in, and I think wrote and kind of directs masterminds. And it's basically about an individual. It's a little bit like that Australian thing we talked about a while ago called Mister In Between, because Barry is a contract killer but also a really nice bloke. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. So that, you know. That's a sympathetic amb- character who kills that, people. That's yeah. ambivalence for you. You know, that's his job. He'll do it if he has to do it. But he's a really sweet guy. He's nice to his girlfriend and nice to his friends, all that kind of thing. And it's Bill Hader, and he's terrifically good. And it's just short episodes. And I would recommend that, you know, if anybody's looking for something to uh, to watch out there in the world of streaming. So anyway, back to NordVPN. You can take advantage of a deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. It's risk-free because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Full details as ever in the show notes below. And while we're talking about Australian series, maybe plug again Colin from Accounts, which is absolutely brilliant. Dave and I absolutely loved it. Watch that. You will not we be disappointed. Did. Absolutely. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Dave, I have a stack Waddy sent in from one of our listeners, Pete Selby, the great Pete Selby of Bonnier Books. And how many of Bonnier Books have we done on our Word in Your your uh, Ear podcast? A lot, haven't we? A Mickey Berenny, Nigel Tassel, Mabatu P.P. Arnold, Bob Stanley, Trevor Horn. Fantastic uh, book imprint, 9-8 and Bonnier. And uh, Pete sent this thing and saying, I can't believe that the wonderful Pharaoh and Bull colour chart hasn't been plundered for previous Stackwaddy inspiration. It may have been. Have I missed yeah. it? Actually, it has a it very does. long time ago. It does. But it's infinitely worth... Uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's worth plundering again. He said, I wonder if anyone's noticed the striking similarity between their idiosyncratic colour descriptors and the song titles by legendary exponents of ethereal dream pop, the Cocteau Twins. Oh, so here we are, Dave. Okay, here's a few of these. Are they Cocteau Twins? Or are they paint colours? Yeah. Tish bite. 
Is that a paint colour or is that a, a cocktail's That song? is a cocktail twins. It is? I think From it Milk is. and Kisses. It, yeah, is. it is. Kitty Wake. That's cocktail twins. No? It, no, 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 no. It's a clean, cool blue inspired by the wings of seabirds <laughs> when seen in bright sunlight from Pharaoh and Bull. Bamboozle. Could that have been an, oh. a B-side by the cocktail twins? Could, it, I'm going to say cocktail twins. No, no. It's Pharaoh and Bull's most spirited red with a fiery hue. <laughs> Dead salmon. Cocktail twins. Again, Farrow and Ball, he's doing well. Jesus, <laughs> dead salmon. A magical quality to it as everyone sees it differently, be it the strong mushroom steeped in history or a warming buff neutral. <laughs> this is their uh, official verbiage, by the way. Sugar hiccup. Oh, surely that's cocktail twins. It is, it is, yeah. That's from, that's from 1983. Whirlybird. Cocktail twins. It's Farrow and Ball, inspired <laughs> by the papery winged seeds Loved by many playful young gardeners and nature lovers. Calfkin, spa- calfkin smack. Cocktail twins. It is, yeah, from Milk and Kisses. Nancy's Blushes. Farrow and Ball. Farrow and Ball, named after the scrumptious rosy cheeks for a much-loved young girl called Nancy. And lastly, Whale's Tales. <laughs> well, that's got another connotation altogether. Um... I'm going to say Cocteau Twins. It's Cocteau Twins. Wow. Victoria Lane. They're good, yeah, aren't they? Fantastic. Very good. You could almost cross that with, I've got, I've got a note of one in front of me that I was trying to, trying to work up the other week and unsuccessfully, but I offer this fragment for the entertainment value. There's a, 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 the American series Portlandia, the, um, the comedy series, which is a kind of lampoon of, of, of kind of new age hippie people living in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they have one wonderful sequence where they have a kind of battle of the quiet bands. Oh, the yes. gentle bands. I've seen it, I've seen it. And so the audience are in front of them, pretty much putting their fingers in their ears, you know, and each of the bands are... They're finger symbols, aren't they? That's <laughs> competing right. to be slightly quieter. And the three bands who appear there are called Featherwash... Yes. Bless the barn and Franny Wisp. <laughs> Brilliant. And I was trying I was trying to wear that up into a into a stack what is. And I couldn't make it work really, but I'll throw those in there for what it's worth. You know, that's, the watch, that's fantastic. Bless the barn and Franny Wisp. Bless the barn. <laughs> so yesterday I went to the test match, Mark. Went to the test match and Lords uh for the Friday. And it was one of those great reminders of the fact that there is no activity on God's earth crueler than Test Match cricket. You know, just the pain it can inflict on individuals. It's excruciating. And also, it's also weather dependent. You pay your whatever it is to go. Is it 180 quid a ticket? I can't remember now. <laughs> oh, whatever. Yeah. A, a lot, you know. And, um, and it could be rained off. It could be just... You, so they start, they start the day, uh, Ben Stokes and Harry Brook striding out to bat. England are four down, but they may, it's, it's not a terrible score or anything. And uh, I'm with friends and they've turned up and we're optimistic, going to see a day's, day's batting, you know, from Ben Stokes and Harry Brook and then there's Johnny Bairstone to come and, you know, so forth. And um, Ben Stokes is out second ball. So it's heartbreaking. This is the leading cricketer in Britain. He's out second ball. Yeah. And then the rest of the side just collapse. They're all out half an hour before lunch. And so he then has to go in the field. He can't bowl because he's injured. So he has to direct this inadequate bowling attack to try and make some impression on an Australian side who are 100, 100 runs ahead on first innings. Nothing he does in the rest of the day goes well at all. And, you know, he kind of appeals for reviews that were rejected and then doesn't appeal for reviews that would have been would have been called out. And all I can think about is it fielding not that far away from me. I used to look at this guy and I used to think, God, what is going through his head? What is that like? At what point in the day, here's my question, at what point in the day does Ben Stokes start composing in his head 
the words that he's going to begin the press conference with at 666. Yes. What the hell is he going to say? I I wasn't there to see what he said. I was on my way home or whatever. But I thought, it doesn't matter how much money you're getting paid, that is painful. Agony. And also with cricket, it's so slow. In football, you can make a mistake. And they have and another go. It's gone. It's gone. Or oh, have another go. It's gone. It's gone. The moment's gone. You, you moved on to something else. It's all so fast. In cricket, you can watch those things over and over again. The drop catch. Oh. Do you know what I mean? The miss shot. The yeah, the miss appeal. Exactly when you see it again. The, the, the other thing, and uh, that I was saying to Frank Caron, who was there, you know, we were discussing. If you're if you're suffering a sporting catastrophe, football, cricket, rugby, anything. Is it more painful to be at the ground or to watch it on television? I think it's far more painful to watch to it there. on television. Oh, you think no, so? Definitely. Definitely. Because you haven't got a load of commentators in your ear when you're at the ground saying, well, I always thought that would happen. Let's look at it once one yeah, more time. Yeah, I suppose you've got because, the ambience of the place as well. No, the but crowd commentary, commentary is not, sporting commentary is not remarking on what's happening on the field of play. Yeah. It is not that at all. It is the creation of narratives. You know, so we decide the narrative for this hour or this two hours is, it's all going great. Or the narrative is, it's all going terrible. Yeah. Or it's all going terrible and we told you so. And it's all about to get even worse or whatever. You know, that's what they're and doing. There's a they're, moment that's generally agreed, wordlessly agreed, that they're going to switch the pace and suddenly go, it could still turn around, you know. But if you're in the ground, you never think that. You're not thinking that the same way. You're thinking, well, it's going terrible. But it could, you know, it could bite up. It yeah. really could because, you know, you know, trundling into bowl, anything can happen. You know? yeah. Whereas if you're watching it on television or listening on the radio, you're completely, you're, your emotions are being manipulated not by the sporting event, but by the commentary team. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's nothing to do with the sporting event at all. It's all to do with the commentary team. So if you're going to, you know, if England are going to have a crap day of the cricket, it's better to be there than not to be there, you know. Anyway. And you um, can always slink off for a cream tea to cheer yourself up. (laughs) Oh, my God, there's more than cream teas going on there, you know. Gary Lineker tweeted this wonderful thing, a little menu from whatever uh, elite part of the ground he was in. It was absolutely stunning. <laughs> Tasting menu lunch and then a, a, an afternoon tea started with a pork pie and, mm. and a sausage roll. I mean, that's the way to start an afternoon tea. Well, you see, I always think if I'm in the, if you're in the grandstand at Lord's, which I've very occasionally is the case with me, and, you know, you see, I get there early, you know, you get there about quarter past ten or something because it starts at eleven. And you start to hear champagne corks behind you and you think, that's not good. That does not augur well. I hope early. to God I'm not that close to those individuals. At who've four started, Yeah. Because when one of the girls has lost one of her shoes. I remember going to the National once, the Grand National, and seeing that people started drinking about 10 o'clock in the morning. And really by about... By about half past 11, I think, we'd passed the first girl in a leopard skin dress who was carrying her <laughs> shoes and crying. <laughs> she was obviously hurt too much. You know. There was also a big dance hall, a kind of big tent with a, with a kind of uh, a DJ in it, a dance floor where you could go and not even watch the, <laughs> the horse racing. The amount of drinking is staggering. You and I have been to Cheltenham, to the, the, the great, you know, the, the great Cheltenham oh, festival, and and if you're in the the bit there in front of the, in front of the stand, you've got a, a raked sloped area down to the rail, haven't you? Where everybody yeah. can stand and watch, and you get there later in the afternoon. There are people incapable of stopping themselves tumbling helplessly yeah. towards Sliding the rail. Down. <laughs> they just go. They, Finishing up under the hooves of what I was cantering home to win. (laughs) So what is the most drunken sport? It is test match cricket nowadays. You know, it's just, it's astonishing. There are guys, yeah, sorry, I'm going to go on about this. There's bottles of champagne. And then then the white wine comes out, you know, at lunchtime. It's a soft drink, a bit of rosé, soft drink just to calm you (laughs) down. No, this is bottles of, uh, of uh, you know, Pulini Montrachet are coming out. Uh, uh, take it to the cricket, you think. 
crikey, Moses, that's about 70 quid a bottle or something. And none of these people are doing it the cheap way. And then at four o'clock, they're still going back more pints of lager. And I think, oh, come on. I've got lager on top of that. Oh, Oh, dear. And by then it was cold. You didn't want a cold drink. But the advantage is they probably weren't aware of just how badly England were doing. So (laughs) so there we are. Anyway, sorry, that's my report from the cricket. Very good. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. I was watching uh, Elton John on, uh, on, on the telly at Glastonbury last, uh, last Sunday, last weekend, and it struck me, and it was rather a moving thing, actually. There was Elton John on stage playing with Nigel Olsen on drums, oh. David Johnson on guitar, and when I saw him, uh, on January the 10th, I think it was, in 1971, at the Guildford Civic Hall, he had Nigel Olsen on drums, I think it had David Johnson on drums, and he had um, Dee Murray on bass. So those three musicians that I saw on the telly on Sunday were the same people I saw playing over 52 years before. That's amazing. That's an extraordinary thing. Don't you they think? think? I mean, occasionally think- you see, you'll see... The old pair of people still together because they're a duo or whatever. But this is band members still playing after 52 years. But don't you think, haven't we talked about this before, that a good half of the value of people going to see groups that they've had a relationship with of any kind, you know, going back 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever, half the value comes when they just walk on stage it does and you just look at them and it's like people feel that somehow their own lives are repaired yeah by the fact that these people are still there you know what i mean because there's there as we've said many times they are fantasy friends aren't they yeah people have been part of your life ever since you can remember almost and yet you've never met them but but you you invest so much in the fact that they that they have a relationship between them. Yeah. Even though Elton and his band have never been a particularly, they've never they've never they gone holding the together. Or anything. They, but that's that's a good thing. It's probably why they've survived. You know. Yeah. Possibly. Um, well, also Elton just keeps working, doesn't he? You know. Yeah. So, so it's obviously a very good living if you're Nigel Elson. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and he'll be you know, on the pension top up tour as they all as they all are nowadays. But so much of the value is is seeing them. Uh, yeah, I, I, Bruce Springsteen is at, is at Hyde Park this weekend, I think. And um, you know, and the whole thing I've I've just come to realise it's all about him and the E Street Band. It's not him. It's not the E Street Band. It's him and the E Street Band because. In 19, you know, we told this story before. 72 yeah. they started. Well, he, no, he, but he kind of, well, various elements of them. You know, he, he was when he came back from seeing his parents in, in, on the West Coast in 1971 again. <laughs> um, and I think he'd, he'd, he'd been listening to Van Morrison. And Van Morrison at the time sold himself as Van Morrison, his band of the street choir. Yeah. Which was quite an old-fashioned way of presenting a band at the time, because don't forget, this was the time of, you know, Led Zeppelin and, you know, Heavy Jelly and all that kind of thing, deliberately kind of blank those kind of names. Whereas the idea of suddenly calling yourself Bruce Springsteen and his band was a very much callback to to the old soul tradition. You know, it was James Brown and the Famous Flames and all that kind of thing. And so he started calling himself the E Street Band, I think 74 or something like that. And so here I am, Bruce Springsteen. Nobody knows who I am, so I'm going to go out and call myself Bruce Springsteen. I'm not going to call myself the rocking Jersey boy or whatever. I'm going to call myself Bruce Springsteen. And I'm going to have a band who have a name that that implies that they're somehow mythical, even though at that stage they're not. Nobody's heard of them, you know what I mean? And therefore, so much of the act ever since has been... I had this band and I had a dream. And lots of the songs are about me and the band, you know, 10th Avenue Freeze Out and all these kind of things, you know. And so many of the routines of Bruce Springsteen were all, it's his life story. 
and his life story is told in the context of the band. So he then built all the members of the band up into being mythical figures. Miami Sea fans. Gave them all those names. Professor yeah. Roy Bittan, Clarence the Big Man Clements, you know. Yeah. Uh, Phantom Dan Federici, Mighty Max Weinberg. He invented all of that in order to give himself a cast of characters that would surround him. Now, obviously, you know, some of them have, you know, have died, but they've been replaced very, I mean, in the case of Clarence Clemens, replaced him with his nephew, because he needed somebody who could play that kind of role. And, and the deal when he turns up in Hyde Park or whatever nowadays in 2023 is, look at me and look at my mates. Yeah. And look how we've come. Look how far we've come. And we're all older, but look. But they're we're still all, together and we're still fond of each other. It's like, just William, it's like just William and his gang. It is. It's like Ginger and whoever else was, <laughs> you know. That's the appeal. And if yeah. it was just Bruce Springsteen and a bunch of session men, no matter how good, bad, or indifferent, it wouldn't work in the same way, you know. It just it has that story appeal. And and it's really struck me that, you know, when he plays with the band, the whole show is his life story, really. And if you still tell your life story at the age of, 70, at the age of 73, and so much of the show is the looks between the band members. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're blown up on the big screen, beautifully choreographed and uh, and really affecting the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a massive piece of theatre. It's it's a, it, there are no great props or anything like yeah. that, but it's it's theatre, and uh, and uh, and the fact that it's the same bunch of guys is hugely important. Um, you know, and. There aren't that many. There, there aren't that say, many. I'm trying to think which others were. I mean, there's still some members of Fairport you're going to see because Fairport would have started about whatever it was, 67. 67. So there's still members of Fairport you're going to see assembled together occasionally. And Mad is to that. Mad is formed in 76, you know. I suppose so. Yes. You know, that's not far off, really. No, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Madness formed in 76. In 76. So Madness have been going 47 years. 47 years. Christ. And, you know, pretty much the same lineup, isn't it? I mean, there's, I think they still have about six of the originals. Though, and they're, they're all still available. I yeah, saw them a, about five or six years ago, I think, a bit longer, and all seven of them were there on stage. Yeah, they would be. And that's absolutely amazing. That really is. I'd never really thought of that. Yeah, 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 because you think of them as being a different generation from your ZZ Tops or whatever. But yeah. it's it's really something, and you're so right. It's all about that. And that's what I that's what I felt watching Elton John. I was just transported back to my 17-year-old self yeah. <laughs> sitting at Guildford Civic Hall and thinking, wow, this is a, this is a spectacle. This man here in his giant boots doing handstands on the piano keys, you know, playing Tumbleweed Connection, whatever it was. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You've spent less on your hair than his in here. (laughs) Yours looks looks better than his. (laughs) The Word Podcast. It passes the time. 60 years ago, Dave, today, we're recording this on July the 1st, 60 years ago, 1963, the Beatles recorded She Loves You and I'll Get You. Um, which is an astonishing thing because five days beforehand, She Loves You didn't exist. Yeah. So within five days, they had written it and recorded it and moved on to the next thing. And I do think that's pretty amazing. And I'm pretty sure that they started writing it after it was a gig at the, um, the Majestic Ballroom in Newcastle on Tyne. And they were touring with Roy Orbison and Jerry and the Pacemakers. And they just, they'd started writing it and they started writing a bit on the tour bus. And then famously that night, I think, staying in what was then known as the Royal Turks Head Hotel, they sat down on the two, on the twin beds opposite each other and, and finished it off. And then record, when they did record it, recorded it. And I think something absolutely astonishing, like four hours. Oh, four probably, hours from just, from, uh, 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 you be, know it, the details. It be fewer than four. It would be three. And they turned up, and Norman Smith, who was the um, engineer on their early recordings, yeah, uh, Paul McCartney, he had he had a note written of the lyrics, which just he, as they were setting up, he just put it on a music stand, 
and uh, Norman Smith, who engineered, you know, love me do, please, please me, from me to you. Twist and shout, what happened? Well, no, in the end. Yeah, twist and shout. And the first album, they'd done that on the stage. He thought, oh, I've got to look at these lyrics. I'm rather excited about this. You know, there's a lot expected of this. You know, is it going to be another smash? And he looked at the lyrics and he later said, I thought they've absolutely blown it. They've blown it. We've lost it. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There is. I don't think so. There is nothing here. And I think, you see, I think think it's really fascinating because I think Norma Smith was completely right. There was nothing there at all because that is the dawning of the genius of the Beatles, which is, as I've said many times, nothing to do with songwriting. All to do with personality. She loves you. Can you imagine any other group on God's earth before or since doing She Loves You? Can you? No. No, you can't. can't. Although it does have some great lines. (coughs) Apologise to her. But can you imagine? Because what's that record all about? It's all about delight, it's all about absolute joy. There is no other group before or since that has had that ability to do that. You know, <coughs> it's like I keep looking at reaching for this parallel all the time. It's like Malcolm and Wise. Can you give Malcolm and Wise material to somebody else? No. No. Because it works because it's Malcolm no, it's the, and Wise. It's the, it's the way they do it between it's the idiosyncrasies, it's the little catchphrases, it's the looks to the camera. She Loves You is made by little bits of backing music, <coughs> tiny bits of guitar, the ooze, the shaking of the heads. Absolutely. You know, that it's the, She Loves You. Actually, you can't listen to She Loves You without thinking of them performing it, actually. No. Um, it's a performance it's rather than just a record. To do. And um, wasn't it also the first one? I think it was the first one where Norman Smith said, first time one where he, he got an additional mic on the drums. And so the drums are quite prominent on She Loves You. You know, it starts with that rumble, doesn't it? Yes, it begins with, it does. starts with the chorus. And and they they also say in Abbey Road Law that that was the day that a load of girls, Beatles that day were doing a photo session outside at the back before before they were due to record. They must have been doing quick pictures for fabulous magazine by probably taken by Dezo Hoffman. And um, and so these these girls were around and these girls somehow got into Abbey Road and started these will be fourteen year old girls tearing around the place, just going mad, running from room to room, looking for a beetle, just screaming. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so they are eventually evicted by the commissioners and the security people they had there. But according to some accounts, th- that is what adds to the excitement of She Loves That's you, right. Is that sense of, yeah. oh, my God, this is the, we're in the centre of Beatlemania. Yeah. Now, you know. Yes. And that's what you hear on those early, early records. I really believe this, is their excitement at what was happening to them Turned back into music, yeah, and and she loves you. Is is you know apart from things on the first. I think it's the first. I think it's the first great single. It is because I don't think "Love Me Do" or "Please Please Me" or "From Me to You" are, are particularly great. She loves you is suddenly just on a different level, a different, different. And then and then I want to hold your hand even higher level than yeah. that, you know. And they're both. They they both communicate the absolute thrill of my God, look at what's happened to us. Look at what's happened to the world, you know. 
They're absolutely unbelievable. Yes, it was a, almost officially the first day that Beatlemania was recognised as a thing, wasn't it? Them breaking into Abbey Road. It's astonishing. I suppose, yeah, well, it was, it was the Daily Mirror, I think, coined the coined the um, the cliche, didn't they? And, and it started filling front pages with it that summer. So that's how many years ago today? 60, 60 years ago today. 60 years ago. Well, I love today. the idea it was all done so fast. And that George and, and Ringo, I don't think it ever heard it. Don't think I'd ever heard it. I think they'd written it and they'd figured it out. And they were booked in to record another single, and this was it. So they went in there. That arrangement was figured out on the spot and completed in four hours. It's just absolutely mind blowing. God bless. Them. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. And uh, now we're joined by Patreon birthday boy Andrew Stocks. Hello, Andrew. When was the birthday? It was 16th of June, which was last week, wasn't it, I think, now? Right, Was it right. the week before? I can't remember, but yeah. yeah. How was that ago. celebrated? Uh, it, I was at work. I'm 53, Mark. So, so nowadays, I don't... My boss says, if you have the day off, but if you have the day off, it's like you're a child. I'm not a child anymore. I'm 53. Quite right. So I think that's right, right, actually. I think he's completely right. I used I'm to feel that back boss. in the office at work. <laughs> you know? Listen... Listen, when did this all start? People thinking that they had to have three weeks off for their birthday, for God's sake. I know, it's two days before thing. and two days to recover afterwards. It was an entire week, basically. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So, yeah, most of, the, most of those at work. And then I think we went out for a meal uh, in the evening with family. But that was it, really. So, yeah, pretty, 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 pretty much like a normal yeah. day, really. So yeah. you got used yeah. to being at a, a van stage now. You know, you, you put the birthday behind well, you. Sort of. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, I was, I was thinking this kind of brings me to the question, really. I was thinking about age in general. You know, you do this thing where you go, oh, it's been how many years since this yeah, thing yeah. and then before that. So I was thinking about that this birthday. And I was thinking, I'm now about 53. I'm now about the same age that Paul McCartney was when Anthology came out in 95. And I remember thinking at the time, gosh, she's old. Yeah. And I'm and, and yeah. I'm now I'm now I'm now his age, and I feel as though I feel quite inferior in a way because he was already at that age doing like a a, a, a series on how you know on his previous career. Well, we were talking I, about him at Live Aid. I think he was how old was he at Live Aid? He was, 40, he was forty-three at Live Aid, three. and, and, and he, he seemed like the uh, oldest man in the world. Exactly, like he, he exactly. stepped down from Mount Rushmore. My God, <laughs> look, he's yeah. still he's still walking about forty-three. And I realised this with Glastonbury only last week, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, uh, and Kalise was on, and and I think you know, how long has it been since Milkshake was a hit? Well, it's 20 years. And Khalise, Khalise is 43. So Khalise is the same age. Now, this is the interesting contrast. Khalise is regarded as quite successful, but not compared to Paul McCartney when you consider what Paul McCartney had done when he was 43. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you think what George Harrison, you know, George Harrison had done by, was it All Things Must Pass? How old was he when he made All Things Must Pass? 27, was he, I think? Well, he was 20, he was just 27 when the Beatles officially broke up, he was 26. Yeah, he was. He'd done all that by the age of 26. It's phenomenal. So you've been reflecting on age. Yeah, yeah. I've been reflecting on it and thinking about um, how, how our music tastes change as we get older, or I think they do anyway. And again, it was prompted a little bit by other conversations I was having with people about there's a bit of scientific trivia I know, which somebody's probably going to call me out and say it's not true, but I think it's true, which is that your taste buds change as you get older. Oh, so actual, the, actual yeah, taste buds. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so when, you're, when, you're, when you're young, you don't like things that taste uh, bitter or savoury so much because yeah. you don't, those taste buds in your mouth aren't, aren't as developed. Mm-hmm. And then they really kick in in your, like, your, your, your teens, late teens, 20s, 30s. But then they're the, also the earliest ones to kind of like uh, um, go away Atro- a little atrophy. bit and stop working. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And then, and then so you go back to, this is why you see lots of old people with packets of Werther's Originals, because they like sweet things again. <laughs> right. Now, I don't that's know whether really that's true. I don't know whether that's true, but that's, but that's what It I could be. You associate old grannies with puddings, don't you? That's right. That's it. That's oh, it. And sweet drinks. Sweet but also, drinks they're, well. also they're, they're not watching their weight quite so seriously when they're yeah, that's also old. true <laughs> so do you that's think this true. do you think and this, this happens with musical taste this, yeah does it happen with music as well go on so that's so that's what i thought so so i was thinking about i was thinking about whether it does and i was thinking about my dad my dad passed away a few years ago but before he did 
he was always when he was when he was in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, he was always quite a um uh he would have said he was a rocker. I don't know whether he was a rocker really, but but he just said he was a rocker. But then as he got um towards his 60s, really, and then into his 70s, he became a huge country and western fan. Yeah. And I know he's not the only old, oldish person who's done that, who's made that, who's made that transition to, to that side of things. And he was liking people like Shania Twain and, and the Dixie Chicks and Chicks Now. And 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 it, and it was all kind of like very, very weird. And I'd try and engage him with conversations about the Beatles. He was like, no, I'm not interested. Or anything, right. anything that he would, he would be interested in when he was, when he was younger just didn't, couldn't really think Is about it. Is that partly no. about getting interested again in the idea of stories about real life? Do you think that's something to do with it? Maybe, maybe it is. I thought, yeah, I thought maybe, maybe it's like, maybe it's like a, um, a nostalgia thing. Maybe it's, maybe it was harking back to, to like times when things were a bit simpler. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, maybe because it's not as threatening. Maybe it is, it is like it's, it's, you know, maybe modern music is threatening. Maybe even, even modern rock music is a bit threatening and countries seems to be a bit kind of like, you know, I, an idealised American almost kind of way of life, isn't it? That hasn't changed maybe so much. So maybe well, it's they, that. I don't know. Country and Western music, yeah, and the reason it still thrives um, is it's the only form of popular music where every single song is about a real life. Every single song has a plot, has characters, has a demon, denouement. Nothing else in popular yeah, music you can does relate to like. it. It's gone. Totally. Yeah. You know, Armit Ettingen used to talk about this, that the great soul music of the 60s and early 70s was about something that people could recognise. And then it changed. It totally changed. And so now it's about the expression of individual personalities and so forth, you know, sloganising and all those sort of things. So I yeah. think that's a, that's a big thing about country music. And country music, it's about people's lives. And people can release songs about lives. I think there's it also is. the fact that as you get older, you have less occasion to play music to rev you up, which is how you used to listen to a lot of music when you were 24, 25. You know, yeah. you, you felt you were losing against the world and this was your revenge on the world. Yes. And when you're in middle age and older, you probably don't feel like that anymore, actually. No, I don't think he felt like that. He, no. he, he was... He went, went a bit Victor Meldrew when he got older, but, oh, but not, not Oh, we not all that do much. that. <laughs> I think there's an element also of when you're younger, you want to play music by people that you can identify with and relate to and that they stand for something. And that's important. It's some kind of statement. It's like the idea of wanting to join gangs and be in the clash or be in the strokes or whatever. And then when you get older, you kind of move to singer-songwriters because they seem to somehow mirror possibly what's that's going true. on in your own life. And I think at the end you finish it off with instrumental music and jazz and stuff like that because because it, it it doesn't require it requires a completely different kind of response. And also each time you listen to instrumental music, I think you you tend to feel differently about it. Whereas if you listen to a song, it's very specific. You're being nailed down by the by the lyric. You often have the same reaction. And I think those things are kind of liberal. Are there any cases, Andrew? In your experience, where there's music that you used to look down on when you were a teenager and you knew all the answers to all the questions of the world, and yeah. now you like, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, I, I found myself getting. Uh, I've got this creeping jazz thing. There you go. In. It's like a. It's like an infection that I can't. I can't. I'm aware of it. <laughs> yes. And I and 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 I and I and I and I find myself just putting stuff on in the background. Like you say, instrumental stuff that I. That um, it just washes over me uh, in a way that, and I would never have engaged with it when I was younger. I'd be like, oh, this is voice, you know, yeah. it's shrunking, it's tuneless, it's, where's the chorus? But now, but now I'm like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll put on some Charlie Parker, I'll put on some Polonius Monk. And, and it's, and it's, uh, it, my, my, my record collection is still overwhelmingly not jazz, but there's this, there's this growing jazz section, which I just, I just, I'm aware of it happening. It will grow. I, it will grow, for, definitely. Yeah. I, know, I know this for a fact. Even the shrunking stuff. What a great word shrunking <laughs> is. <laughs> I love that. But, yeah, you know, I just, they, you know, I'm a great believer. I think Bob Dylan says this, you know, the, the future is always in the past. You know, it's if you want to hear something extraordinary, it won't be made next week. It will have been made 50 years ago. But you probably <laughs> never have heard it before. Or you'll never have heard it with the right head on. Uh, you know, that's probably yeah, the music. Pretty... The music's always there. It's just it's waiting for you. There. To, yeah, it is. it's just waiting for you. 
it, yeah. it, it, is, it is definitely the case, you know. There's loads of, you know, I don't know, old country music, Jimmy Rogers and things like that, you know, and Hank Williams. And you said, when you used to listen to that as a teenager, you used to think, this is so twee. This <laughs> I is, know. This is, I'm, so, I'm so much edgier than this, you know yeah. what I mean? And then, and then you realise, and you get older, no, this is really edgy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hank and Williams I, uh, and I have the same thing with um, even even going off Justin. I have the same thing with um, somebody who's been in the, in the you know in the press a lot recently. Nick Drake. I, I I never liked Nick Drake when I was younger. I just thought he was a bit twee and a, and, and a bit fay. And now I find myself listening to Nick Drake. Um, you know, I mean, most weeks really of yeah, something. Sure. So it's something that it's something that definitely changes as you You've as you caught get up with it. Precisely, yeah, I caught, I caught up with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe, true. It, yeah. No, well, I think also, I, I think Nick Drake is a classic case. Is I think the world's caught up with Nick Drake. You know, the world has a great need for nowadays. And, you know, it's, I think it's technology as much as anything else. There's a need for something that's just the antithesis of that. You know what I mean? That's that's it's balm for the soul. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yes. Just one yeah. man alone very, at night with a guitar. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, and. Um, and, you know, all that stuff, we used to listen to it back at the time it was made, and it never quite had the impact that it has now because times have changed, you know. And that's why I think Mark and I were talking about this the other day, that, you know, our, our whole way of assessing musical success may change because things will end up being successful 30 years after the purple people who did them have died. Yeah. Because the music will still be there. It'll, still it'll be, be drifting yeah. around, but it'll suddenly yeah. make sense and suddenly and come into suddenly, focus. It'll suddenly yeah. come into focus. Well, look, interesting, very interesting food for thought, Andrew. Yes, um, thank you. Thanks, thanks for sharing that on your um, on a few weeks after your birthday. That's all right. <laughs> Almost in time for your notes. I hope I haven't depressed anybody. Not, not at all. Not at all. Many That's shrunking a... returns for next year. <laughs> yeah. we'll, all right. And we'll see you then. <laughs> all right. Not the Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. We have another birthday guest and it's the uh, the very splendid Patrick Cleesby. Patrick, happy birthday, whenever it was. I think it was a few days ago. And uh, you had a query <laughs> that you wanted to uh, to toss into the mix. Well, the initial query was uh, was just um, casting back your minds to your journalistic days. Had you ever uh, accidentally nearly killed a pop or rock star, dropped a <laughs> suitcase off out of a out of a hand luggage uh, compartment onto Phil Lynott's head or anything? Because um, I was remarking earlier that I'd um, nearly accidentally run over Peter Blegvad behind a pub on the Hammersmith Road a few years ago. Right. And uh, so he's always been a big favourite of mine. So it was just a... Uh, and you wouldn't miss him either, would you? No, he's, he's no. very Six tall seven. man. He spread Six eagled seven. across a mini boot going like this. Oh, no. <laughs> Six foot seven, is that, the, is, that the, the, is that the tallest musician in the world, Mark? Ooh, I can't think. I can't think of anybody Who the big ones? Fish from yeah. Marillion was very Mace tall. Is he is very tall. Wayne Butler out of Arcade Fire, I think, probably. Yeah, but oh, really? takes oh, really? a lot of beating, doesn't it? Oh, wow, wow, wow. So, sorry, you had a point about Peter Gabriel, the ticket prices. Well, it's just a follow-up to what you were saying the other day, which is, I don't know if you guys are aware, but um, it was fairly alarming to the whole community when the initial prices came out. And um, I, ended up, I ended up only going to one because the the set list was sort of disappointing in advance, kind of briefed from initial occurrences in Italy. So I ended up going to Birmingham, which is where I first saw him in 1983, which was a seminal early gig for me. But I'd, I had a stupidly priced VIP one for, for at the O2, which someone actually bought off me for 370 quid, which is what it cost, which was a massive relief because it clashed with a gig of my sons. But it also put this extra one on in Nottingham, which I think is partly the problem that it went on late. I was a bit optimistic. But it was the night before I had to go to Glastonbury, so I, I, I don't know why I bought it. I bought it because it was front row, and it was the standard price for decent tickets was 185 quid, which mm. is people going, oh, no, it doesn't sound very good. I mean, it was great to see him again. He's getting a bit uh, slow in his old age. I don't think we'll probably see him again. But the fact was this one was cancelled. Um, claimed logistics, but the kind of Nottingham rumour mill is that it was only 50% sold. So... Well- there's been a lot of I, I I can't comment on that particular case, but I know Bob Lefsetz, who runs a very good industry newsletter from the United States, 
he's he's been banging on about this for a couple of years now that um basically lots of huge gigs where there are highly priced premium tickets people pay a lot for premium tickets you can still get in on the day if you just turn up because they haven't sold the whole house yeah. they're selling the expensive bits of the house yeah because yeah, that's where the money is yeah uh, and if you just turn up and take pot luck you know on the night you'll get in in, in 95% of these cases mm. and yeah that may be a case of this you know and you also have to appear like the whole thing is just melting down because there's so You've much you got demand. to do that everyone has to do that because otherwise it looks like somebody's you know general status is on the slide which they're desperately trying well, to... It's like we who's, were talking about... Who's broken the internet first, you know? It's like this Taylor, Taylor Swift business we were just talking about the other day, weren't we? You know, she's yeah. sold all these tickets for gigs that are a year hence. Mm. A year. And in the cities where that's taking place, it has already distorted the hotel market. It does that. That's yeah. fantastic. It's the just cheapest house, The cheapest room, I think, in Dublin next year when the concerts are. Next year? November, next year. I think the cheapest room is 360 uh, euros. That's the cheapest. But there's people renting out apartments for 20,000 euros for a weekend. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think the food blew out um, for, for next July yesterday, which I can only, pres- only presume means they're probably playing Glastonbury again. Um, Sorry, who was that? I missed who you're talking about. gigs and, and just went bananas. Right. But Saturday, Glastonbury next year is actually my 58th birthday. And I've, I, I I was down the front for the one six years ago, but I was with my lad drinking beer further back this time. But uh, they're a great festival band. So right. I'm not right. going to the London Stadium. I went to see Bruce. I first saw Bruce in a stadium in 1988 and resolved never to really go to stadiums again, but I did go this time, and it was the similar experience. It was crazy expensive, you're miles away. It's still a Bruce it's still show. fantastic. Well, so anyway, so, yes, so, good. so yesterday I went to the test match, okay? Guest of a friend, okay? Um, so I'm not, I'm not paying myself. Went to the test match. How much is the ticket? One day at a test match. How much? 70 quid. 300? 180 pounds. 180. 180 pounds. Now, Same as Bruce. And, okay. and, that's, and if it rains, absolutely, no, yeah. absolutely, it was. Listen, a lovely day. I'm not kidding. But in terms of a day's cricket, if you're an England supporter, that was misery incarnate. They were terrible. <laughs> you know, everything went wrong. There's no guarantees. At least you're going to see Bruce Springsteen. He's going to play Born to yeah. Run. He'll yeah. come up at this time and he'll go off at that time. Sport is a very different Complete thing. lottery. Particularly, particularly cricket, you know, because it's not even it's not even the 90-minute punch of a, of a football match. It's, it's a totally different thing, you know. But... Um, but I think you might be right about, uh, you know, the sold-out gigs may not be quite as sold out as, as they would like people to believe. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. Any other business? We're joined by Alex Gold. How are we, Alex? Hello, we, we, are, we are fine. We are somewhere c- called Othery, which is Othery. near Taunton. We've, well, we're, it's an all-or-nothing weekend, and we've been put up in this lovely little cottage uh, we arrived there after the gig on Friday night to be greeted with a hamper. Hey. A, oh, what did hamper. it contain? It contained fancy crisps, some artisan bread, a, a red velvet cake. Um, there is an espresso machine as well. We had several several espresso pods at our disposal. A red lovely. velvet cake? A red velvet cake. That's I've never arrived cake. at an accommodation <laughs> before and been greeted with cake in a hamper. So uh, that's very. I don't. Cool. Know, wow. I can never look at a travelodge again. I don't think. Uh, right. No, no, no. How are you going to keep? I don't normally associate the word artisan with a travelodge, but there we go. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so uh, have we got new Patreon um, friends? Alex? We do indeed. Whatever the collective noun for a group of patrons is, friends. we have a, friends. We have a big friends of Patreon. Good this week. Uh, starting with Alex Scott. Alex Scott is uh, played a minor role in in Doctor Who in the nineteen eighties, um, uh, but it's very nice to know that he's still around. Carry on, in, indeed. Could, could of course be the sports presenter, Alex Scott, couldn't it? Possible. Uh, oh, okay, right. No, yes, no, no. We never know. Yeah, that's true. Okay. And then we have Paul Tyler. Paul Tyler. 
Paul Tyler is one of the lesser-known members of Oasis. He was only in, the band for, <laughs> only in the band for about a week, but, you know, he's left his mark on history. Carry he on. Was, he was on Second Tambourine, wasn't he? There you go. Yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Burton. Chris Burton. Uh, similar, was, was a member of, early member of Coldplay, but he <laughs> left uh, before they made it big to go off and be a research chemist. And he's doing very valuable work, Chris. Carry on. Ian Cleverdon. Over to you, Mark. Ian Cleverdon. I think Ian Cleverdon probably is a crime fiction writer who's not very well known, actually. He's, uh, <laughs> he's still sitting uh, in an attic lit only by a, a, a bare light bulb hammering away <laughs> at something that he hopes would have been published in the old days in, in a green penguin. So, but, yeah, uh, and then good. the next name, next name that comes up, if it's a man, will be the name of Ian Cleverdon's fictional detective. That's come right. On, come on, Alex, what's the next name? Next name is John Scornick. There oh, you go. There you go. That's, he's invented by Ian. A belted Macintosh. <laughs> invented by Ian <laughs> With a hip flask. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> he's a fan of Nick Cave, you know. And yes. He, he likes vintage port and yeah. solves <laughs> crime wherever he is. Carry on. Bit of a maverick. Um, and they all are. <laughs> I wish Lam- there was a detective who said, yes. I just do things the conventional way. You know, that's, that's my gimmick. <laughs> yeah. My gimmick is I don't like Tom Waits. You know, that'd be <laughs> a, a, a refreshing change, wouldn't it, really? Carry on. Go on. Um, Randy Marcus. Very good. Wow, Randy, Randy Marcus. Marcus. Randy Marcus is, was a Baseball member of... Baseball jock? No, he's a member of Rush. Oh, good, yes. He's a member of Rush, you know, when they were briefly a four-piece. Uh, Randy Marcus, he went to the University of Calgary with other members of, uh, of the group who became Rush. And uh, he does uh, he does valuable work into research into into brown bears in, in the Canadian wilderness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andy Cairns, Andy Cairns, Andy Cairns, former piccolo player in the London Philharmonic. <laughs> Could be. might have been. Yeah. Yeah, it's fullback for Huddersfield Town in the yes. 1980s. Gone. And it should be noted, this is entirely in capitals, addicted to noise. Addicted oh, right. to noise. Well, good yeah. grief. Addicted well. to noise is, 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 is a man who wears a T-shirt 365 days a year. Yes. <laughs> often, with, often with a packet of Marlborough twisted into the sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, is that the lot? No, it's not. In fact, we have two Clubhouse tier patrons. Oh, uh, well, well. If, if you're a member of the Clubhouse tier, you get all the bells and whistles and... Yeah quite possibly the greatest birthday present it's possibly to to give yourself a visit from Mark and Dave oh, to rubbish sorry. through your record collection to show off your record collection absolutely and they are Michael Gamble Michael Gamble um I think Michael. a Luton Town player <laughs> well, they're stage. back in the Premier League know. you know so it's uh, yeah it's, it's perfect yeah. time for Michael to break cover good okay uh, and Gianluca Tramontagna well, uh, well, again, plays for Halifax Town. <laughs> 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 Which, in this day and age, he might well do. But, you yeah. know, if, uh, but back in the day, he wouldn't have done. So we're, we're, we're assuming that he, he, plays for, uh, he plays for Firenze uh, in whatever division they're in in, in Italy. But it's very nice to have have him and everybody else on board, isn't it? It is. They're very welcome. Fantastic. Indeed. Uh, and if you'd like to join them, if you'd like to join that that very special group, if you go to patreon.com slash word in your ear, you can find out full details and see how you might get involved. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.